0: To today's episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontline, presented to you by Battle to Be. And we are extraordinarily excited to bring a guest today that is part of the corrections family. And we don't often get to speak to representatives uh, from that category. So I want to give you guys a window into that world of work and how it is similar and different to being a law enforcement officer out on the street. And just open some lines of communication to this unique set of challenges and benefits. So today I'm bringing to you Dr. John Lawry. Hello.
1: Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me.
0: I'm really excited to be able to talk about corrections because uh, oftentimes there's there's a little bit of competitiveness and a little bit of snarkiness, of course, in between different first responder professions. And and sometimes corrections is the the, the redheaded stepchild of law enforcement, so to speak. So <laughs> I want to bring some voices forward from that line of work and show the world that it's it's not easy and it's not uh, it's not what they think it is.
1: I absolutely agree. And like I said, it's it's definitely, um, yeah, corrections is, uh, I find, very uh, underrepresented when we discuss uh, criminal justice, so I am shamelessly pro-corrections. Uh, obviously, I fully support police, fire, EMS, and you know every other component as well, but uh, it is nice to be able to have a voice for corrections, so I appreciate it and I thank you very much.
0: Right. So let's start by... Going way backwards, let's talk about your family life when you were when you were growing up. Was it a military or first responder environment for you?
1: Sure. So I I grew up a long time ago. Uh, I was born in 1970. So um, when uh, my, my father was Air Force, he was an Air Force veteran. So I, I did have that uh, military history in my family. Uh, raised in a working middle class environment. Um, you know, both my parents, uh, your tr- your traditional kind of suburban upbringing. Uh, there was never any law enforcement specifically in my family. I think I was the first person in my immediate family to go into law enforcement. And in fairness, I absolutely had no law enforcement aspirations whatsoever. So growing up, that was nothing that ever crossed my radar. And it wasn't until I got to college and realized that my plan of going to law school was much more expensive than I thought it was going to be. Um, so I was out one night with some of my buddies, we were, uh, we were at a bar drinking, and I guess that's foreshadowing for a lot of other stories in my life, um, but we were out having a couple beers, and they asked, you know, what are you going to do after graduation? Why don't you come with us and take the Connecticut DOC test? And I had no idea what the DOC was. They explained it was the prison. Um, wasn't really too thrilled, but as the evening progressed, it seemed to seem better and better. So long story short, I took the test. A few months later I was offered a position and a few weeks after that I started the academy. So uh yeah I, I, I ended up in corrections um with like I said with, with with no real preparation, no real expectations.
0: So a roll of the dice. I love that. That's that's not not typically what I hear. Most people, you know, are following following in the footsteps of someone that they they admired. Uh, sure. I love the idea that you're spontaneous enough to just go, oh hey Let's try that.
1: <laughs> exactly. yeah, so that was uh, that was that was definitely it. So I figured, you know my 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 thought at the time was, you know, I'll do it for a couple of years, save up some money, and I'll go back to law school later. And it's been thirty years, and law school's never 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 been an option after that. So it seemed like a good idea at the time.
0: It's not such a big jump to go from being interested in rules and regulations that law aspect to moving into a profession like in corrections really do you do you see that parallel
1: oh no certainly i mean there, there's definitely and again depending on, on on what area of you know law you wanted to get into you know for me years ago my interest was uh was environmental law um but again i think that was uh that was something that i, I had a general interest in i didn't really know the specifics it just sounded kind of good and then you know as i got to department and as i started to um you know, see how things work and how things operate. Uh, what what was kind of unique for me? I was probably 11 minutes into my first day in the academy when I made myself a promise that I would not work day past 20 because I had to, but only because I wanted to. You know, so when I started the job back then, it was a, it was a 20 year retirement. So you work your 20, and you know, you could leave regardless of your age, which is a really great benefit. Um, but I learned very quickly. Um, that this could be a career that could have some some serious uh, detrimental impact on mental health, physical health, and things like that. So very early in my career, I made a conscious decision to have a plan to um, make the transition if and when possible.
0: So really interestingly, as you say, that it can have a detrimental effect on mental health. Um, I was just talking with someone who is leadership at a corrections facility and we were talking about one of the programs that that we offer in our organization and the funny thing was it immediately switched from how can we support the personnel to well that sounds like something that the inmates might need (laughs) so uh it was just really interesting to notice that thinking about mental wellness for the staff is secondary to thinking about the mental wellness of the inmate population. Uh, Was that, is that something that you could comment on from your Uh, experience?
1: I absolutely agree. And, you know, what's kind of interesting about corrections is over the last 30 years, I've spoken to people in corrections from all over the country and some instances all over the world. And even though we've never met, we've never worked a shift together, never been the same facility, same agency. The, parallels and the commonalities between what we experience is uncanny staff morale um you know issues you know all of those things are pretty much universal in corrections and i'm sure that they exist in other fields as well but i'm just much more cognizant of it in corrections so you know to your point i have always been an advocate of you know of of staff wellness and development and you know for me there was the educational component uh you know while i was on the job i got my master's i got my doctorate which was very rare in correction so that prepared me for my my future career working in higher education but beyond the the educational development what i started to recognize a lot more as you said is is the need for you know mental health and, and medical health and so now i you know, I work with a lot of individuals and we try and address those issues. One of the things I actually did is I just developed a program to help staff sort of transition through their, their, their career in corrections and beyond. And as you said, you know, uh, corrections is designed almost specifically to prepare the offender to reintegrate back into society effectively. And I think that's tremendous. That's what we need to do. I fully support that but as you also said sometimes that same uh effort is not extended to staff and that's something I, I would really love to see a lot of the programs a lot of the things in my in my experience and in my opinion that focus on when it comes to corrections is, is specifically offender oriented and again while that's important I believe that if you're going to have the greatest impact on a correctional population, it has to be a holistic approach and it has to incorporate and include staff as well, because they have to live in that environment while they're on the job. And I believe that would only be beneficial if agencies and departments put more of an emphasis on helping staff through their careers, as well as preparing them for what the next chapter of their life might be.
0: Right. we like to talk about a area that most people don't like talking about and that is that transition period from the identity of officer or whatever your job position title is that you've claimed that transition period from getting close to the end of your career and retirement to not having that identity anymore and how that affects people uh, you like you've mentioned that you address that transition period. So what is it that you've noticed that is so important about that stage of life? And, and what what kind of actionable steps do you have for our audience in that? Absolutely.
1: I mean, and that's huge. So, you know, if you begin a career in corrections, you get hired, you go through a three month academy. Then you spend nine months on your working test period. Then you spend your career. Doing the job, doing your in service training, being whatever it is officer, captain, lieutenant, whatever your title is, but it's always correctional first. And then you retire, and the next day you are no longer that person. And in my personal experience, and a lot of individuals I work with and worked with in the past, that was huge. I mean, you identify, you know, when I was on the job, outside of the job, I was the prison guard. So if you associate with individuals, which I rarely did outside of corrections, you know, big, bald, scary looking prison guard was, you know, it was, was, was kind of my, that was my identity. And I kind of embraced that a little bit. Um, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to make that transition away because it's, it's literally, it's a, it's a, it's a 24 hour difference. You wake up that next morning and none of that means anything moving forward you can draw from the experiences you had, but you need to basically redefine yourself and create a new identity. Um, Because in my experience, if you don't, that's probably the most detrimental because those are the individuals I saw that just retired from the job and their next full-time job was sitting at a bar, you know, all day, all night drinking and talking about how awful the job was and how miserable they were and how many ex-wives and alamoys and childs and all those horrible things that go with that combined with how many funerals and wakes we've been going to for people who were on the job and and recently retired. And I thought that was something that we we, we absolutely need to address. When you look at the mortality rates, when you look at the suicide rates, the divorce rates are astronomical for corrections and to change that identity and realize that you are capable of doing something else and becoming, you know, whatever you want to be. Again, I can speak to my personal experience. Those sorts of uh, things weren't necessarily encouraged when I was on the job. There was never any talk about, you know, there was talk about what would, you know what's your next rank in the in the system, but there was never any hey. How's your family? How are the kids doing? You know, how you know how you know what you what you know, what are you thinking about? If you blew your back out tomorrow and couldn't come back to work, what would you do? Do you have a plan? And and that never existed. So that's one of the things I really try and focus on now. Talk to a lot of the you know the younger staff and, and some of the senior officers and let them know that corrections is kind of unique because you basically know the day you start, the day you can leave. So you have that period of time to plan and prepare. And a lot of individuals do a really good job with it, and they're very successful and they make that transition seamlessly and, and it's great. But unfortunately, many don't. So I think it's important that we provide them with the skill sets necessary, addressing issues like medical health, mental health, familial relationships. You know, people don't think about the impact on your family. If you were working the department for 25, 30 years, you were working multiple overtime shifts and all of a sudden you're home all the time. They're always seeing you and you know corrections people in general tend to have little idiosyncrasies so things that were done a certain way when you weren't around forever and all of a sudden we're maybe critiquing or nitpicking or changing and that has an impact on your family um you know things like spirituality religion like say it's it's all of those aspects that are important to an individual that they really need to start to address and incorporate to make that transition more efficient
0: Right. Address it all long before the time comes that you're.
1: Preferably. That yes. Yes. Start, you know, start, start the earlier you can start the process, the better, but it's never too late. You know, it, you know, you know, if you, if you're retiring, it's better to start thinking about it. Obviously it, you know, it's like anything, it's better to start thinking about it early in your career, but it's never too late to start to develop the skill sets and the plan that you will need in order to do that. And it's kind of interesting because. Law enforcement, you know, law enforcement in general, corrections, again, I can speak specifically, we always, no matter where we are, we have a contingency plan. If we go out to a, a restaurant with our family, we have a contingency plan. If we're walking in the mall, we, you know, if A, then B, and we do that all the time for the safety and security kind of thing. But I find that we very rarely have that contingency plan for ourselves and for our, you know, career transition and, and just overall health. And I think that's something that you know we we possess the skill set. We just need to change the direction of how we focus it.
0: I like that access point, access, exit, yeah. exit plan. Still <laughs> <You laughs> the same thing: access points and 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 exit plan.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Parallel language. Yes. So we often talk about retirement. Uh, we talk about the risk of suicide at different phases of employment. And statistically speaking, we know that retirement is a high risk time for law enforcement officers in general. So, but what we don't talk about that you've already kind of briefly touched on is the physical toll that the high stress professions take on your life and the, the increased risk for medical problems would you have anything
1: to absolutely uh you know we know that the average life expectancy of the u.s citizen is 77 and the average life expectancy of some retires from a career in corrections is just about 58 so statistically speaking we live 19 years less than the general population and we tend to and, and this is and again this is statistics are relative i heard about this 20 years ago didn't really think about it as much you know 58 when you're 25 is one thing 58 when you're 53 then it's a little different approach so you know the closer you know again you know on paper i got five years left so obviously i'm doing everything i can to extend that but that's a reality so and, and you you know we can't argue that i you know i worked at one facility my entire career uh granted it was the largest facility in the state of connecticut but in that 20-year period i believe it went to 35 wakes and funeral services for coworkers just at that facility. The oldest individual was 51. So, you know, it's, you know, so heart attack, stroke, suicide, um, also a lot of uh, motorcycle car accidents because it involves that, you know, that we tend to generate uh, or, you know, um, gravitate towards more high risk behaviors. Um, And then later in my career as the opiate issue, grew. We had, you know, we had the overdoses and, you know, officers who some of the most squared away, uh, former military special, I mean, individuals that were heroes hurt their knee, hurt their back. And all of a sudden, six, eight months, a year later, I don't even recognize them um, because of those, those, those detrimental, as you said, the physical effects. So I, I, again, I think it's imperative that as a collective agency corrections we do everything we can to make sure that we are taking care of our staff as well as possible because as as i'm being redundant our our staff are going to take care of the goals and objectives of corrections the better we can prepare them the better we can care for them the better they can do the job in my opinion
0: we're seeing a lot of trends in law enforcement in having challenges with uh recruitment and retention is that is that situation uh following through in the corrections environment as well
1: absolutely uh you know i talked to a lot of uh i deal with 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 a lot of correctional agencies a lot of uh correctional academies specifically all over the country uh hundreds if not thousands of individuals i spoke to one individual who was a sheriff in southwest texas and he was the only person ever telling me that they have more applicants and they have positions available. Other than that, so when, wherever that county in Texas is, whatever they're doing is fantastic. But anywhere else, it's, uh, it, it's a huge issue. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, corrections historically, when I started the job back in 1993, the reason we had a 20-year pension, the reason we had all those benefits is because no one wanted the job. It's you know it's a it's a very dangerous job. There's a, you know there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknown. Um, I've been a criminal justice professor, you know, specifically in corrections for 25 years now. So whenever I teach my classes, I try and talk about corrections. And I try and talk it up, and I've actually had quite a few students come through my program and go into the field of corrections, and that was that was really good. And I still do. Um, One interesting kind of caveat to this was I've had a few students, and at first I couldn't believe it, but then there started to be a little bit patterns, about three or four, who made it through the the testing process, got through the interview process, and they turned the job down when they realized that they could not bring their cell phones into the facility with them during their shift. The idea of having to leave their cell phone in the car for eight or possibly 16 hours was something they could not offset in order to take that position of employment.
0: Interesting. I wonder if that has to do with that sense of security that I can't actually get help for myself if I don't have my phone on my person like that. Uh, That creates a vulnerability that I don't. That would be my first impression. Sure. Is my first reaction would be, "Oh, but if I get in trouble, I have no access to the outside world. I can't call for help."
1: And, and, and that's that. That very well could be. Unfortunately, mine is because I can't go that long without checking my social media. <laughs> and, that, and again, and, and, and I know obviously as the you know the old. Mm-hmm guy in the new you know and it's always that that the, the generation but you know i i talk to you know a, a lot of individuals on the job and, and there is and it's the same thing that the guys in you know the staff that started back in the 60s and 70s said about us we started in the 80s and 90s that's that, that's just human nature but yeah. you know it's it's in in my experience and in, in, in speaking with people it's definitely something um you know some departments i've, I've heard have gone to where officers can bring them in and. You know they can be given breaks after a certain amount of time to check their cell phones and, and things like that. That, but but I, I mean this is just one example. Um, but you know it speaks to the point. Recruitment for criminal justice in general is difficult. Uh, that's you know you know and I've you know you look at Connecticut State Police historically Connecticut State Police was one of the most sought after state police departments in in the country. You would have five six seven hundred applicants lists you know every time now they're struggling so and those are the you know the glamorous jobs the policing the thought you know and corrections as you said when we started corrections doesn't have that reputation um i've in, in the 30 years that i've been involved in this i've met one person whose career aspirations from the time they could remember were to work in a prison you know most people want to be a a state trooper, they want to be a local PD, or they want to be FBI, DEA, and, and, you know, they'll come in using as a stepping stone. But unless it's, you know, I guess in some areas, you know, it could be generational. If those are, you know, some facilities I know in some more remote areas, those are the only industry in the area. But, you know, working in Connecticut over a 30-year period, I met one individual who from the time that they were little, all they ever wanted to do was work in a prison. Um, So, again, it's not generally speaking, it's not the sort of thing that most people, you know, most kids aspire to. And I think all of those issues make the whole recruitment and retention thing that much more challenging because, you know, a lot of departments may not pay that well. You know, and and I've had students tell me they're like I can make I can make more money sitting on my couch doing drop shipping. Why am I going to go out? and and risk my life or get spit on and be assaulted and be threatened and it's difficult for me to answer that (laughs) you know i mean it's 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 if that's if that's the situation we're in that's difficult to compete with
0: right so i would assume and i don't have experience talking with a lot of people from the corrections environment but from law enforcement in general most people say the reason that they get into it is because they want to help people because they want to make something different or better for people. So in corrections, my perception would be that you would go into that because you want to change the lives of being incarcerated. You want to you want to change outcomes for these people. Do you feel like that's something that people tend to go in for and is there is there a period of disillusionment that happens because of that ideal that idealistic desire?
1: Certainly. And again, there's this is this is not a blanket. Everybody has a different view and opinion. You know, corrections like all forms of law enforcement and public safety is a type of service. So you have to have a certain mindset going into those types of career if you're going to be successful for a long period of time. Um, I often said that I wish I had a marketable skill set. I wish I was uh, I wish I was a framer. You know, you show up in the morning on the work site, there's a pile of wood, you leave at the end of your shift and you framed out a garage. There's something tangible that you can see you actually made a difference, you accomplished something. Corrections is not like that. You know, it's on the daily operations, pretty much in my experience, the way you measure a successful day in corrections is if everybody that you were with in roll call left at the end of the shift without being hurt and there were no major or critical incidents. Certainly, you can have an impact on an offender's life. You can be a role model. You can be a mentor. You can see changes, and, and over the course of thirty, you know, the thirty years, twenty years I've been doing it, and the, the last ten that I've been involved, I've seen dozens of guys that I had, you know, as inmates, you know, come through and get out and and be very successful, and, and that is that is rewarding. It, it's 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 nice to see, um, but the reality is. Uh, it's, it's a process. It takes a great deal of time before it bears any fruit and it's really not as common as it should be given the size of our population. So yeah, you know, when you talk about, you know, helping people and making a difference, um, I think it is much, I guess, Easier or more likely if you are a firefighter, if you are a police officer, if you are an EMT. Um, but again, one you know, one in my experience, one of the issues working in a prison setting is it's a prison setting, and it, it takes a tremendous toll on you. And, and I, I think you mentioned you know cynicism and um, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can have the greatest intentions in the world, um, but if you're not careful, the job can absolutely destroy you. It can absolutely beat you down. So again, why it's so imperative that we provide staff with the tools necessary to cope with that and continue to do the job as as effectively as they can.
0: So I wanna make sure that people kind of get the idea the good side too, because obviously you went in and you loved it and you stayed for a long period of time and you, it was the right career for you. And it and it was difficult and challenging, but it also nourished your soul. So let's talk a little bit about like, what are the things about the job that you absolutely loved and that, that gave you those feelings of accomplishment and, and why you stayed?
1: absolutely and again i you know it's not it is not all bad there are absolutely tremendous benefits and so you know one of the one of the one of the things that i to this day i miss most and i think anybody i talk to who's retired is the camaraderie you know it's the individuals you worked with the other staff members in, in some instances you know you know some of the inmates you know so, I mean, you never develop a friendship but you have a certain rapport i mean these the average sentence at McDougal was 75 years. Most guys were doing life and I was there. So there, I mean, there were guys that I knew for 20 years, you know, locked up. So you interact with them, you associate with them. Um, you have some, you know, some, you have some really deep conversations, philosophical about sports, about whatever. So those interactions I miss every day. Um, you know, the individuals and and the people I worked with, that was probably that you know that was probably one of the things that kept me able to do the job um beyond that as i said is kind of refocusing my approach to how i was going to get through it and for me a lot of the staff i worked with had trades they were plumbers electricians landscapers whatever the case may be so they took the job with the doc to get the benefits and get the pension so they would work as little overtime as possible. They would work all their side jobs for additional money. They would retire and then do their job and they would be set because they worked for themselves. And, they come. and that was a brilliant plan and for anybody that can do that. I strongly recommend it. As I mentioned, I possess zero skill sets. I can't mm-hmm. fix anything, um, but I can talk. So I sort of fell into the teaching. So for me, it was academia. I, um, About five years into my job, when I was going to go back to law school, I actually went back to get my my master's in criminal justice. Uh, It took me two years. I completed that. And the day that I finished my last test for my master's, the individual who was the CJ professor in charge of corrections notified me that he was retiring and asked if I would be interested in replacing him and his name was Hank DeLuca. He was actually retired, New York State DOC, 30 years. Tremendous individual. I owe the majority of my teaching career to him because I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. I said, Hank, what do you mean, like, like a college professor? I'm like, Hank, I'm a prison guard. You know, he's like, he's like no, you understand. it." So long story short, just to sort of placate him, I said, yeah, sure, you know, let the chair know I'm interested. And two weeks later, the chair reached out to me and offered me the position. So uh, I was an adjunct for about the last 13 years of my career. So, so I did my master's and I knew that I loved the teaching and it's what I wanted to do. But one of the next steps I had to do was get my terminal degree. So I had to go back for my doctorate. So for my last four years on the job, I was a unit manager at McDougall. So I worked the facility during the day. I was an adjunct in the evening and I was doing a full-time doctoral program in between. Uh, it was absolutely as miserable and horrendous as you imagine it might've been, uh, but I joked that that was, my, that was my ticket to parole. So my, my getting that terminal degree, it allowed me to be able to retire at my 20 year mark, as I promised myself back in the academy, but still be relative in the field and continue to build on the things that I learned and worked on, and now had a much better forum to, to do those things. So when I got to, to Albertus Magnus College, um, I just basically worked on blowing up our corrections component. Because again, all CJ schools talk about policing. All schools talk about fire. There are hundreds if not thousands of law schools. Very few programs focus on corrections so that's pretty much where i I, we you know i myself and our department have have placed our resources and it's been a a really great endeavor for the last 10 years i know people who work in corrections i think are genuinely thankful because the classes are taught by corrections professionals or people you know people who have actual experience doing the job um, and not someone who read a book about working in a prison once so um, you know, that, that that's a really great thing. And, you know, like I said, it's w- another thing that kind of made the job and again, for me, it was kind of unique, relatively speaking it was only a short period of time, you know, chronologically it was, it was only, it was only 20 years. Um, and that was something that, you know, at the time was, you know, appeal to me, you know, to be able to leave when I wanted to not have to, you know, not have to do if, if I wanted to, that was an option. Um, so again, that was just one more thing that it was kind of beneficial about it. But again, this this the skill, you know, I feel that people I think the people who work in corrections sort of sell themselves short sometimes when it comes to thinking that they're maybe not marketable for jobs beyond corrections. Um while there may not be a lot of maybe hard skills, like I left the department having almost zero aptitude when it came to using a computer. You know, we didn't use spreadsheets. We didn't use a lot of technology. I joked that when I started the job, we had the handwritten two froms with the multi-copy. I have no idea to this day. I have no idea what goldenrod was, but it went in the warden slot, and you would literally put your pink copy here, your white copy here, um, and we had Polaroid cameras for our crime scene photos. So um, the technology, I was I was lacking a great deal when I left from that. But I think the soft skills. Specifically, the ability to communicate with people, the ability to read situations, the ability to assess things, um, work through um, traumatic and stressful situations. I think those skill sets can be applied at a much broader level than many staff give themselves credit for. Right,
0: knowing how to market yourself and and your experiences, and and those. Proper words to use for the things that you've experienced. There's always ways to make it sound very different to yourself. Uh, I definitely agree that we don't in general in society place enough value on soft skills, especially communication and problem solving. And, and those are key to success in any environment. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or an emergency room tech or you know an investigator, those skills are extraordinarily important. So uh, recognizing those marketable skills and recognizing the value of the work that you do uh, outside of the facility, just being able to say, not I'm just a corrections officer or I'm just a guard, which I hear all the time. I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a guard. Um, I, I'm just, I just do parole, you know, or whatever it is. It's, I'm just this. I'm like, let's take that out of there. Cause that says you do not value your own work. So if you're going to identify yourself as this thing, put some value in there and say, I am this or yeah. better. I would love to hear you say, I do this. <laughs>
1: yeah. And you're 100 percent and obviously guilty as charged. You go back and rewind it that you know that was my response to DeLuca, because that you know, at that time, that was the culture. So, like anything else, I think we need to change the culture in in every way, in the vernacular, in the perceptions, in the expectations, you know, all those things need to, and and you you were absolutely spot on with it. Um change, you know, for me, once I started that so once once I started to get into academia, so I joked that I spent 20 years running cell blocks in the largest maximum security prison in New England, and now I'm an academic at a small Catholic college of the Dominican tradition. So two very I mean, I don't know if you could find more polar opposites when it came to work environments. Um, but that experience for me working in higher ed allowed me to see that and to see that the value and the worth in, it took me to get outside of corrections to see the value and worth of my career in corrections, because, you know, unfortunately, and again, I can speak to my time. It was, it was pretty depressing and, you know, and, 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 morale maybe wasn't that great. And everybody was kind of collectively miserable and, you know, it's, it's human nature. Um And if you just, if you just identify as just a prison guard, I think in a lot of ways, that's a coping mechanism or defense mechanism, because then the expectation isn't that high. You're not challenging yourself. You, you know, you're not thinking, you know, I never, my first day on the job, I never thought that 20 years later, I would have a doctorate and be a chair of a criminal justice department. But it took that process for me to be able to see that that's something that I could accomplish. And every individual has whatever that path is for them. Um and, and 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 you're absolutely right. We have to change how we see ourselves so we can effectively become the types of individuals we need to be to be good for the job, good for ourselves, and good for our families.
0: Let's talk about something. We're gonna take a like sharp left turn sure. here. <laughs> Let's talk about you mentioned the relationships with the inmates. Mm-hmm. I've briefly touched on this with another guest who worked with uh, he worked with sex offenders basically and he spent a lot of time with them and we talked about the, the moral the moral challenge that you face when you're spending all this time with these people, how do you balance, these relationships that are established and these even friendships to some extent, you respect each other and you, you connect with each other. How do you balance that moral challenge that you face when you go, but this person did this and I'm still fe- having feelings about, you know, that this is kind of a cool person to hang out with.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, I, I completely get what you saying, and, and it's, it's difficult. It's a, it's a difficult balance to strike. Um, and again, I can only speak to myself, you know, personally. So the individuals that I found I had the best sort of rapport with. So this isn't so. I, I, I can, I can, and people who work in corrections also share this. But outside of corrections, this is an odd statement. I know thousands of murderers. I know thousands of guys who killed people for whatever, multiple people for whatever, for whatever the reasons were. Right. Generally, you know, and obviously in society, the most heinous crime we can imagine and Absolutely. So. But broadly speaking, many of those individuals were some of the best inmates I was able to do. Oftentimes it was a one time. The number of individuals who was a one time crime of passion, they never got in trouble in their lives before. And again, don't get me wrong. You know, we had individuals who I wanted nothing to do with who committed. Um, The point is, I guess you, whatever, and again, it it is—it's a fine line between an effective working relationship. You know, I had inmates that I I saw for every day for twenty years, and you know, the extent of the conversations—you know, more than Mr. Smith, you know, more than Mr. Larry, whatever the case may be. Um, And then, you know, there were some that you know just kind of through attrition over time. I was into strength sports, so certain inmates were into strength sports. We talked about strength sports. Uh, had a little bit of an affinity for art, so inmates were into it. So you have different, just just like in regular, you know, with our regular everyday contacts, you, you may speak to different people you speak to about kind of different things. And and you're right. I mean, it's it becomes a challenge to strike that balance between being polite. Um, communicative and relaying personal information. You know, the individuals that I had the best rapport with never asked me for anything. Never asked me to bring them anything, never asked me for any favors. It was and also I think a, a lot of it comes with time. You know, I don't recommend or you know, it, it took me 5 10 sometimes 15 years of dealing with someone on a regular, you know, to to get to that level. But, you know, there are individuals who are individuals, I can think of three or four guys I know who finished their sentences. They all did at least twenty five years. They they served their time. They're out, and they'll come and speak to my classes, or we'll get together and grab a coffee and just see how they're doing. I mean, they have finished their sentence. Um, they're, you know, they're they're, uh, you know, they're in society. They're doing the things they should be doing, um, and we share. Oftentimes, we share the common goal. We want to, see, you know, I want to see the same thing as they do. They just have a much Perspective as to how to achieve that. You know, they, you know, I see the side through the lens of custody, they see it through the side lens of someone who's incarcerated. So there are times that we can, you know, we, we network and we work together and we'll, we'll speak at different events, and I find it very beneficial. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting balance. And what I see it with is I'm not sure how familiar you are with the the Norwegian prison system, the Norway model. Um, People talk about the Norway model as, you know, the, the cutting edge system and way to operate a prison in there. It's much more of a normal community staff sit down and play chess with the inmate. They talk to the inmate. They, they, they communicate at a much more personal level. And those are the and 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 again for me, someone who never experienced that. That's I. One of my biggest struggles is seeing things through the lens of a practitioner who did the job and seeing the through the lens of an academic who theoretically studies things. I understand the theoretical component of how that would be beneficial, but there's also that part of me that goes back to what we you know, what we what we call undue familiarity and being manipulated or played because if the inmate feels that you are being compassionate to them right. and compassionate, then that creates a problem, which I said that, I mean, the whole thing is a very delicate balancing act. Um, and the only way I think you can effectively accomplish it is to go through it. Um, again, maintain a strong ethical, you know, uh, Theory, not do anything you're not supposed to do, but I think you can still, you know, have conversations and, and, and engage in discussions with with offenders and not have it be inappropriate.
0: So I think one of the challenges uh, is the boundary between the punitive concept. <laughs> if I'm if I'm hearing all of this correctly, the boundary between the punitive concept and the relational uh, rehabilitatory concept and the fact that we're all human beings, both the incarcerated and those employed in corrections. So we have human interactions and the lines are a little bit blurry as to what is the reason or the effect outcome that we're looking for in this environment. Is, Is that a... Exactly. I'm coming from an academic theoretical right. perspective only.
1: <laughs> and that's exactly it. So, you know, what, what is your justification for punishment? Are you looking for retribution? Are you looking for deterrence? Are you looking for incapacitation? Are you looking for rehabilitation? Uh, you know, so what, and they're not mutually exclusive. I, you know, I believe most people, if you ask them what the goal of corrections is, it's there's a component of punishment. So, there's the retribution. There's the component of deterrence, where if you lock one person up for doing something, specific deterrence, that person will never do it again. And or general deterrence, society will, will will see that and therefore they will be less likely to. There's the component of rehabilitation. We know that 2.3 million people incarcerated, about 95% will eventually be released. So there has to be a rehabilitative component. So again, I don't, I don't feel that any of them are mutually exclusive. And it depends on what the view, in my experience, what society is at the time. So when I started back in 1993, that was right. You know, that was the, the results of the get tough on crime, the war on drugs, the 1994 crime control bill. Prisons were opened up all over the country. The prison population exploded. You know, now we're starting to see that pendulum swing the other way um, and that and each has good and bad consequences. In my opinion like anything else the key is trying to thread the needle in that sweet spot how do you employ the least amount of punishment necessary to achieve the greatest outcome desired and and the pro and the problem is and again this is where i go the populations are different. So as I said, I mean, I worked at a maximum security prison. So the individuals I dealt with, some of them were some of the most horrendous, heinous crimes. You know, those individuals will never be out of prison and they should never be out of prison. So, you know, I, I I fully support the theory and I agree that we have, oftentimes we have far too many people incarcerated for crimes they probably shouldn't be. Nonviolent drug offenses, marijuana offenses, you know, things like that. But again, that's where I struggle with practitioner versus theoretical, because those weren't the populations I worked with. You know, there is is the reality of when you are surrounded by some individuals who are that violent, who are that predatory, who are that dangerous, it tends to skew your view and you find it more difficult to be more. And I, I can, again, speaking for myself, I have become much more objective and much more open to, you know, changing the way we address. The longer I've been out of the system, like I don't have, you know, I, I be, you know, and I think it's because I'm not in that environment so much. You know, you you know, I, I think that I'm able to be again. I think I think I'm able to view things more objectively because I've removed sort of the visceral component of again, because even if it's you know. You can have 99 great encounters a day, but the first time someone tries to stab you, it just—it's a bad day. You know what I mean? So that's and that's and and it's—it's it's like anything. It's—it's it's a disproportionately low amount of your time, but when we, you know, we talk about PTSD and trauma, you know, and things like that, it has a huge impact on how, for me personally, how I process things. Um. And I'm aware and I I know that and I try to be more conscious of it and I try to be more understanding. I try to be more empathetic. um, and, And in fairness, I think it is easier the longer I'm out of that environment.
0: So we were just talking before the show about some new things in your life, some new directions that you're taking. So let's let's get everybody on board of what are you doing now? that you're still impacting your career, you're still impacting the academic world, but you're also you're also reaching backwards to to your people again. So let's talk a little bit about what are you doing now to sure stay um,
1: yes and as I said shamelessly pro uh, corrections and here's where that plays out. So obviously you know in, in my official professional capacity associate professor and chair of criminal justice at Albertus Magnus College. Uh, But I'm also I I just started a web page and a, a business basically on career coaching for correctional professionals and addressing some of the things we've talked about here, helping individuals kind of prepare themselves to effectively and successfully do the job, but also plan beyond the job. You know, best case scenario, they work a 25 year career, they get everything lined up and they're able to make that transition seamlessly and be very, very, very effective in it. And that's great. But unfortunately, given the nature of the job, they may get hurt tomorrow, have a plan for that. You know, what are you going to do if, again, we go back to the contingency plan. What are you going to do if X happens to have that plan? So, um, you know, that's 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 something that I um, just started doing. And I'm also reach, uh, I work with a, with an agency, uh, the Stonington Institute in North Stonington, Connecticut. And we operate a, a military first responder uh, trauma rehab center, which we're extending to now include uh, first responders, police corrections, et cetera. So I'm working on the, um, again, all corrections related, but- Three, three kind of different areas: the academic side, the professional side, and the you know the medical and mental health side. So, um, you know, again, we, we were speaking bef- before we came on. I, th- I think it's imperative that we have individuals from our respective law enforcement communities to help other staff members. Um, you know there's there's a there's a there's a, there's a and, you know there are a lot of really great organizations working with police and working with fire but to the point we talked about earlier um some of those don't include or recognize corrections or you know E N you know emts or um you know uh emergency response operators and i think it's i think it's really important that we expand that net as wide as possible and that we all support each other the best that we can
0: it's, it's always interesting to me uh, when I have – I've not had any trouble with guests that I've had on the show, but I've interviewed a lot of people. We I do a pre-interview, as you know. Uh, I do a pre-interview with people to determine if we want to do the show together and to see if we can share the message uh, together in a, in a way that comes across really nice. And there are two different mentalities in this industry. There is the, uh, you know, I'm just a drop – I always say, I'm just a drop in the ocean. and uh, But when we all come together and speak with the same voice, we create a tidal wave of change. So I play really well with others. And I think that the way that we're going to actually achieve our goals is to communicate together and to create these systems and to try to standardize some processes that can play in all these different places. And the only way we can do that is by working together. And then there's the other side of that that, there's a lot of people here, there's a lot of organizations that they want their voice to be the only one that's heard. They want to make all the money. They want to be, you know, the creator of a system that is theirs and it's very expensive and, you know, they don't share and they don't play well with others uh, and they create a negative atmosphere for all of us because a lot of organizations, a lot of you know, police departments or whatever have Dealt with them in the past and their promises were empty. And they said, You know, give me $10,000. I'll come in and fix your department. You know, we'll change it from top to bottom. And then nothing happened. Like it was just another box junk thing. But as we all start to come together, we're realizing that we all have the same answer. We're all working on the same basic principles. And they're not anything we don't already know. Like, all of this stuff has been around for centuries all of this stuff we already know we're just afraid to take the time and energy to admit that we need it as a culture right we're just we're just not willing to say I have to actually breathe I have to actually fix my mindset I have to actually take time for myself in my life
1: hundred um, percent you know I mean I I made a career. Of responding to the question, "How are you?" I'm okay. I'm okay. Fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. Um, and you're absolutely right, and I could not agree with with, with all of your sentiments. And and that's I, I think, you know, it's like collectively, if we realize that we're all working for the same goal, it just makes it that much more effective. I, I believe that the more inclusive we can be, the more successful and effective we're going to be. So I absolutely share those sentiments and to your other point about individuals and the motivation behind, you know, you know, are they truly trying to accomplish something or they, you know, they have the ulterior motives, you know, when all is said and done, there's usually more said than done. So I'm not interested in what you have to say. I'm interested in what you have to do. What are you, how are you actively trying to achieve those goals? What are you doing? What is your approach? And for, you know, for anyone out there who's, who's, who's watching, you know, if I would be more than happy to, you know, to work with you and all, even if it's not corrections, we all want to accomplish the same thing. So if we can utilize our resources and, you know, pool those resources and work together, I think that we can really have a tremendous impact on the population as a whole.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And definitely, if you're in trouble, if you're out there and you're struggling and you don't know what to do, we answer the phone. <laughs> so so if you've called, and I hate to say this, but I need to, if you've called a suicide hotline and been hung up on, or if you've called a suicide hotline and spent three hours on hold mm-hmm. and you just want to talk to somebody normal, somebody who knows, somebody who will just sit and listen to you, uh, I have a list of people who will answer the phone and I, I already know without even asking you that you're one of those people, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. That's another area that I actually didn't get into. Yeah. i work worked with an organization called responders first, and that's basically what we do as well. You know, it's uh, individuals from various law enforcement backgrounds working together just again, try and get individuals the help they need. Um, so they're able to deal with the issues they have and, and successfully transition through and hopefully get to uh where i am in retirement and join it because it's really not too bad now that not now that i'm here it's nice so i just try and do what i can to make the journey a little bit smoother for those individuals who are quite quite aren't here yet
0: so i will make sure that the links are in the description for the show that you have access uh and if you want to reach out to either of us you can do that we'll put the links for uh some of the organizations that have been mentioned and make sure that you can find all that information and please if you're struggling out there know that there are tons of resources for you out there i know it can be difficult to find the ones that are right for you uh don't give up don't stop trying because the right resources are there for you Uh, just maybe hiding in unexpected places (laughs) So are there any last words that you want to leave our audience with? What's your uh, words
1: of wisdom quote? I would just, I would like to, you know, deeply thank you for this opportunity. I think what you're doing is it's tremendous. I think there's an audience that's very receptive to it. And again, I just reiterate, if you are out there and you are watching this and you are struggling and you have any concerns, you have things that you think you need to address, trust me, I've been there. I waited for me personally, I probably waited too long to address those. So reach out. The assistance is available. And speaking for myself, uh, you know, we'll do whatever possible to help you through and get you where you need to be.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, everybody, so much for being with us today. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to see us be able to continue, you can support us at battle2be.org, B-A-T-T-L-E, the number 2, B-E.org. And as you probably already know, we do not charge for our services for our military first responders or for their families. And that goes for our memorial services as well as for our helping services. So know that we are funded entirely by community members and corporate sponsors. So if you'd like to be a corporate sponsor of our podcast, please just email us at battle2b at yahoo.com. And we would love to see what kind of partnership we can create. That's a win-win for both of us. And we make excellent brand partners. And we also love working with other nonprofits to create systems that elevate first responder and military lives. So reach out to us. If you would like to know more about what we're doing, if you would like to connect and maybe work on some projects together, or if you would like us to bring Phoenix, the Memorial Jeep out to an event or have one of our speakers. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you again next week at Rise Up Voices from the Front Lines.